So if you've been to Israel, then you've no doubt been to the Western Wall in Jerusalem's Old City, the holiest place in Judaism. But I'll bet you never asked yourself, hey, where's the second most holiest site in Judaism? And the answer to that lies about 20 miles south of Jerusalem in the city of Hebron, within today's West Bank. Home to over 200,000 Palestinians and about 1,000 Jews, it is one of the most tightly controlled, complex, and tense environments in the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Although the Palestinian government and the Israeli army try to maintain a buffer between Jews and Muslims, Hebron has nevertheless been the source of some horrific acts of violence, especially around its old cities. And tensions and tempers still run extremely high today, to say the least. All of this because Hebron, one of the most ancient cities in Israel, contains the second holiest site of Judaism, a place even older than the Western Wall, and a place also holy to Islam and Christianity. The Cave of Machpelah, purchased by Abraham as a tomb for his wife Sarah, and today containing the graves of the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs. If we were going to rank the stories of the Bible by their order of importance, there's a good argument to be made for ranking the story of the Cave of Machpelah in the top five if not, arguably, in the number one position. That is because in buying this chunk of real estate, Abraham forever established his people in the land of Israel, an argument that continues to define life and death today. So we should really know this story. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. At the age of 127, Sarah dies in Hebron, referred to in the Bible as Kiryat Arba. She's the only woman whose age of death is recorded in the Bible. Abraham went to the locals and, pleading that he was a stranger in their midst, asked if he could purchase a burying place for Sarah. The people responded that they considered him a prince amongst them and should feel free to pick the best tomb for his wife. What we have here is a nice illustration of the duality or ambiguity of Abraham's relationship with the land of Canaan. On the one hand, he is correct that he's a stranger. The direct translation of the biblical phrase is probably resident alien, having come from elsewhere and never really establishing a permanent home besides his tent. He enjoys no property rights or the kind of land holdings that would give him status, as a resident alien, he can't even buy land without permission. But on the other hand, does he need it? God promised him all this land as part of the covenant. This is his realm to theoretically do with as he pleases. And clearly the locals revere him as someone with much greater status than a resident alien. They're aware of God's promise. Now that he's gotten the approval of the local people, Abraham has to get the approval of the local landowner from whom he will purchase the tomb. And although this was an era before subprime mortgages became a thing, Abraham and Ephron, the landowner, are about to get into a little exchange that is going to end up costing Abraham what is probably a good chunk of money. Ephron, the landowner, hears that Abraham wants a cave to bury Sarah and says, Listen, not only am I going to give you the cave for free, but I'm going to throw in the field that surrounds it too. So the question is, was he being a nice guy? Or was he setting up the kind of classic Israeli upsell that has cost many a birthrighter too many shekels at the shuk? It's hard to say, but it's possible that it was a genuine offer being made to someone who the people considered chosen by God. And in any case, Abraham, foreshadowing the kinds of ethics violations that would plague politicians for thousands of years, refuses the free offer and insists on paying full price for both the land and the cave. 
And pay full price he did. Ephron, and you can really even picture this whole exchange happening, says, Well, the land is worth 400 shekels, but come on, what's that between the two of us? And Abraham pays up. A shekel, by the way, is a bit less than half an ounce of silver, about 12 grams, and was the primary medium for business transactions in this era. Coins wouldn't be invented for several hundred years. It's pretty difficult to determine how much those 400 shekels of silver would be worth in today's dollars, and therefore it's hard to know whether Abraham paid a lot for this cave or got a good deal. What we do know is that the land was bought before the hipster coffee shops moved in, so I'm sure things got worse once Abraham and all the patriarchs were, you know, dead and the place gentrified. But anyway, Abraham insisted on paying the full price so that no one could later dispute that he paid the full price for it. He was buying a permanent piece of property for Sarah, himself, and his future descendants. This whole exchange was taking place in public amongst the locals. The Bible records a lot of ceremony, formal meetings, bowing, the exact exchange of money, a detailed description of the land, and finally made explicit that Abraham was fully in possession of this land and was its rightful owner. The biblical intent is clear. This land absolutely belongs to Abraham. So, this is a very specific story. Even at the time that this story was included in the Bible, it was already close to a thousand years old and had clearly come down through the centuries through the oral tradition. The question is why? And that takes us back to the argument that this is one of the most important stories in the Bible. The interpretation is both obvious and subtle. For a people for whom the land of Israel is the center of history, tradition, spirituality, and longing, the purchase of the cave of Machpelah marks the beginnings of our firm roots there. Here was the indisputable proof that our ancestor Abraham definitively owned the land and paid full price for it, on the condition that it be forever in his family's possession. The details of the commercial transaction, the exact price, the fact that it was handled in public, the fact that Abraham refused the offer of the cave as a gift, meant that the Jewish attachment to the land was beyond question. That's why this story is so essential. It answers the question of how and when the Jewish people began to permanently settle in the Promised Land about 3,700 years ago. But, and with Jewish history there's always a but, Abraham still insists on the idea that he is a resident alien in this land. A stranger and a sojourner, he says. That's the more subtle reason why this story is so important. Remember, the biblical writers could have changed the story to make Abraham a native-born Canaanite. We wouldn't need to go through the whole exercise of when and where the Jewish people first start living in our ancient homeland. And Abraham, as a native storyline, would have established the Jewish presence there like a perpetual motion machine. Something with no beginning and thus undeniable. But that's not how we told, preserved, and wrote the story. The idea that we are resident aliens is a powerful part of the Jewish narrative. One notion is that we ourselves cannot be owners of land. Only God can own land. And therefore we are resident aliens wherever we live. God promised us the land of Israel not to own, but to keep. But it's also the case that Jews have spent much of our existence outside the promised land. We have lived as resident aliens politically and culturally in just about every empire, era, and nation in history, including during the biblical and pre-biblical era. As the historian Paul Johnson notes, no other people in history have had such an emotional attachment to a particular land. And at the same time, no one has shown such an urge to migrate. The cave of Machpelah exemplifies an ambiguity. To both belong to a place and to feel apart seems like the quintessential Jewish historical experience. But in purchasing the cave, 
a tomb for the mortal remains of our patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham was laying the foundational stone for our attachment to the Holy Land, even though his descendants were about to embark on an epic journey that would take them in and out of Israel for the next several thousand years. But let's go back to Abraham for a second. After Sarah's death, he took another wife, named Keturah, and had another six kids with her. And yet he ended up giving his entire inheritance to his second son, Isaac. Not only that, he pushed the other kids to the east, as far away from Isaac as possible, although he did give them gifts on their way out the door, which I guess is something. And yet, even though he remarried, he remained faithful to Sarah for all eternity by being buried next to her. Think about this from an ancient patriarchal perspective and consider then the importance that Sarah plays as the mother of the Jewish people. Sarah doesn't get buried in his tomb. He gets buried in hers. But the fact that it is Sarah's tomb that first anchors the Jewish people permanently in Israel suggests the high esteem in which our ancestors held her. The Bible doesn't record her as simply one of Abraham's wives, seen but not heard, but instead as someone who has a complete story all her own. She shares in all of Abraham's adventures, is with him when he talks to God, and her emotions are not only central to the biblical account, but propel the story along, sometimes even more so than Abraham's actions. Her jealousy against Hagar gets Ishmael banned. Her sadness at being unable to conceive throws into doubt God's promise to create a great nation. And her laughter at the birth of Isaac ensures the continuity of the Jewish people. This story is why there's no simple answer to the question that always comes up on birthright. Why doesn't Israel simply leave the West Bank territory to the Palestinians? To go back to the city of Hebron, whose 200,000 Palestinians and 1,000 Jews have been at loggerheads for decades now, sometimes violently, it isn't so easy to tell one people or the other to leave. Even putting aside the whole notion of God's promise, which to our rational, American, not particularly religious ears sounds absurd, there is no denying a Jewish attachment to this place that goes back thousands of years. Traditionally associated with the burial place of six of the seven patriarchs and matriarchs, starting with Sarah, it is not only the second holiest site for Jews, but also the oldest Jewish site in the world. Artifacts relating to the Israelites have been found there dating back 3,000 years. The same king who built the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, King Herod, also built the current complex in Hebron, the oldest structure still being used for its original purpose today, and using the same distinct stonework that you see at the Western Wall. Since then, each of this region's invaders has used Herod's massive structure for their own purposes, such as a church or a mosque. 700 years ago, when the Muslim Mamluks captured Hebron, they forbade entrance to the Jews. Jews were only allowed to come as close as the seventh step on the outside entrance. It was not until Israel's capture of the city in the 1967 Six-Day War that a Jew once again entered the tomb of the patriarchs. But the site was still a scene of religious violence and tension, the most famous attack being by an Israeli-American settler in 1994, I don't even want to speak his name, who murdered 29 Muslims at prayer inside the complex before being beaten to death. The riots that followed the massacre killed another 35 people and led Israel to impose severe restrictions on some of the neighborhoods around the tomb, bearing Jews from Arab neighborhoods and Arabs from the Jewish ones. Today, the complex is still governed by the Muslim authorities, not Jewish ones, and a Byzantine set of rules and customs mandates which religion gets to pray where, when, and under what conditions. Jewish prayer is very restricted, but on the other hand, the Israeli army controls all the security in and around the site, 
often prohibiting non-Jews from driving or even walking on some of the main roads. You might think all this is questionable for a traditional site whose provenance lies in ancient history. But in recent years, the double cave of Machpelah containing the tombs was actually rediscovered deep beneath King Herod's complex. There are accounts from back in the 12th century of people making their way into the cave and finding the human bones of six individuals. Those bones appear to be gone today, but the archaeological evidence is strong that at the very least, this cave was used as a prominent burial chamber at least 3,000 years ago. So you can understand how, for the Jews, this site is holy ground of profound significance, marking our first permanent settlement in the Promised Land, a place so deeply associated with our earliest traditions and stories and personalities that to try to impose a contemporary political solution is, to say the least, immensely difficult. How can we, or anyone, Muslims or Christians, voluntarily give up such a tangible manifestation of our most ancient historical and spiritual selves? And as for Abraham, so was he a real person or just a legend? He too has come on a long journey from his humble beginnings in the city of Ur in Sumeria, having heard a voice that told him, Lech Lecha, go forth. He has set the standard for other historical Jewish leaders, bold, humble, flawed, generous, sometimes cruel, devoted. His purchase of the cave for Sarah's body, while not the final story in his life, exemplifies the culmination of his journey from Ur. The cave of Machpelah is where the Jewish people first laid down our roots and our mortal remains in the Holy Land. It's the place where Abraham measured his sense of belonging and still found himself a stranger. And it still today wrestles daily with the decisions he made some 3,700 years ago about which son was to be favored and which was to be cast out. We've come a long way with Abraham these last few episodes, from a journey that began all the way back in Sumeria. But eventually, in chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, at the age of 175, Abraham dies. And Isaac and Ishmael, the two oldest sons who don't think much of one another, who have never met, and whose Jewish and Muslim descendants still can't seem to coexist today, they came together for the first and last time to bury their father beside his wife, in the cave of Machpelah which he purchased in Hebron in the Promised Land for 400 shekels. The Bible says of Abraham that he died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And with Abraham having now slipped into history, we are left to see whether this peoplehood he was promised will survive without him. Will his son Isaac continue the trajectory? What will be the shape of Judaism's new leadership? and what fates await the new heroes we're about to meet. Tune in next time as we learn about Isaac. <laughs>